0: will be those that you will find beneficial as you start and scale your business, from branding and social media experts to mindset coaches in PR and marketing. There will also be solo episodes from me discussing a variety of topics, from sourcing to maximizing the profit in your business. What happens when a company imitates your designs and can you fight it? This is one of the topics I'm going to be talking today with Cara Sayer, founder of Snooze Shade, who took the big boys to court and won. Hi, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I love your products Newsshade. shade. I actually have it for it was one of the products I brought for my kids when they were young. You, definitely you must have been support. an early adopter, I think probably. Yeah, well my my son Lucas is 10. Yeah. So you like it's a 13 year old business, so basically you were like one of the early adopters. Great. And and hopefully then well i be definitely one of the early advocates of like you yeah, everyone has to buy this product. Yeah. But tell me about how the brand started and a bit about your background as well.
1: Yep, sure. So, my background is I spent my early career in PR marketing, or PR mainly, actually, and events management. And for example, I worked on the launch of the National Lottery, which was back in 94, 99, I launched Tesco online shopping, which was always quite funny when I rang up some of the magazines and they'd be like, oh, I don't think any of our customers, our our readers uh, would like someone else to touch their tomatoes. And like now when you look at it, like, you know what, 24 years on and everyone's like buying anything they can online, it does. And at the time I, I was sitting there thinking, well, I think you're wrong. But uh, yes, yeah, so I launched that. And then I worked with the team. We we launched um, eBay and Amazon in the UK when it was just a book warehouse in Slough. This is, again, all back in like 99, 2000. And then I went to work for a magazine publishing house. So I worked on some of the like good housekeeping, Prima, Prima Baby. House Beautiful, You and Your Wedding, and a few others. And then I became events and sponsorship manager for Prima, Prima Baby, which was lovely. I enjoyed doing that. I used to do the Prima High Street Fashion Awards, which used to raise money for breast cancer, a breakthrough breast cancer, they were called. And I just to love that because I've always liked to be able to sort of give back somehow. So I did all that. And then I went to work for another company where I got headhunted for a more corporate role. Again, well, all the other jobs were corporate, but this was like sort of even more corporate they were hideous. I'm afraid it was an old old boys club. I just was like, no, I'm not doing this. So I, I killed myself nearly for a good sort of seven or eight months. And then my my now ex-husband, who I'm very friendly with, said to me, leave. And I was like, I can't leave. It's a high paying job. And he went, yes, you can. So I was like, okay. So I left. Uh, then I started freelancing, etc. And then we'd got married, moved into trying for a baby Found it not as easy as we'd like, and ended up having IVF. And Holly, who is my beautiful sixteen-year-old daughter, who um, would obviously gets hideously embarrassed every time I mention her anywhere, is the result, which was a pretty amazing event.
0: So Holly comes along. Well, actually, I suppose just going back to that kind of corporate thing, I know it's a very hard decision to just leave, and I yeah. bet you probably thought about that because it becomes so much of your identity. Yeah, identity. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I have to say, I did struggle with that as well, even after I had Holly,
1: because I was freelancing before I had Holly. I was literally like sort of on my computer as I was going in for the C-section. And, you know, and then after I had Holly, those first few months when people said, what do you do? I remember being at a New Year's Eve party and someone said, what do you do? I said, I'm a mother. And it kind of went, oh, that's nice. And sort of walked off. And I'm like, what? Hang on a minute. I'm me. I'm still interesting. I'm still funny. You know, what's going on? But actually I had a horrendous pregnancy. Unfortunately, I had something called symphysis pubis dysfunction, otherwise known as SPD or PGP pelvic girdle pain. I had one of the worst cases anyone had ever seen. Ha oh, ha, that's always me. I like to do things <laughs> to excess. <I> <laughs> Exactly. So I was in a wheelchair for nearly nine months, which is why I had a C-section, because I had actually had a uh, home birth planned with whale music and uh, midwives at home. That went went out the window, didn't it? That went out the window quite quickly. And so what actually happened was, and the reason I invented snooze shade really, was because I was so excited about being up and about again, that as soon as I was able to start walking, which was Holly was born at the end of October, and I was sort of up and around again-ish probably like February, something like that. January, February is when I was sort of able to walk. I had to learn how to walk again because I was walking like a crab (laughs) because my hips had gone all, you know. So Shakira, the hips do lie. (laughs) And, um, anyway, so I I had to learn how to walk again, which was, which was fine. It wasn't that didn't take me that long to get back into the literal swing of it, but then I wanted to walk everywhere. I was like, oh my God, I have to stop
0: here a second. I'm learning to, I had to learn to walk, to walk again. And that was fine. That was okay. That was fine. Jesus, you must be some kind of resilient powerhouse to have gone through all of that. And then if
1: you hear some of the stuff I've been through a slew shade, you'll know that I am. I mean, I think (laughs) resilience is one of my key personality traits, and has had to be throughout my whole life. So I think it's just something that comes very naturally to me. So I do tend to poo-poo it, I know. But it's just because for me, it's completely normal to get thrown into shit and come out smelling of roses. So purely due to drive, refusing to give up and being bloody stubborn. So, yes, exactly. So, anyway, so I had to learn how to walk again. And I was very excited because I had the Pram and Holly and I was like, right, we're gonna go walking, like, because I'm walking again. And, and, and unless you've lost the ability to walk and then get it again, you I mean, now I don't go for I was being very healthy recently and going for walks all the time. And I've had a few issues with the business, which I'm happy to discuss. And so I stopped my, my daily walks. So, you know, walking is really good for you. And I was like, right. So I used to go, right, we're going to go to Sainsbury's, going to buy the stuff for breakfast. And we're going to go to Sainsbury's and we're going to buy the, you know, because it was about a mile and a half walk each way. And we're going to go buy the stuff for lunch. Then we're going to do the same thing for dinner. And then plus, you know, I live in an area, I live in Surrey. A lot of people, there's lots of ability to walk around. It's not like in London, for example, so much, you know, where it's easy to walk through parks and, and on pavements, etc. So I used to walk a lot because I was and I cycled and did all sorts of things. And uh, but one of the things I noticed was obviously Holly was born at the end of October and then it was February, March. And if I wanted to go for a walk with her, you know, I'd have to end up putting my coat on the pram to kind of stop her from getting cold because, you know, the air is chilly and you can wrap them up as warm as you like. But actually, their poor little faces are still in the, you know, still there. So they need kind of a windshield of some sort. And then as the, the weather developed, it obviously turns into spring and then you're thinking sun protection. And then as she gets that little bit older, I'm also, she's also not sleeping as easily. So basically what happens is rather than lying sort of fairly passively in the pram and just nodding off when she feels like it, you know, it takes about five seconds for a baby who's just woken up to engage with the world. And so that's their job is to engage with the world because they're learning. And so they wake up. And you don't want them to wake up because if they wake up and then they don't get the nap that they need, and children actually need naps until they're about three years old, but particularly in the early days, babies actually grow through sleep. So sleeping it actually produces the hormones and all the other things that actually enable them to grow and develop. And also on a very basic level, you get a grumpy baby or who's overtired. And the best way of describing it is like if you imagine yourself with jet lag, where you've got that horrible feeling of feeling exhausted, wanting to sleep, like you'd give anything to have a snooze, but you're just so bloody tired, you can't switch off. And that's what it's like for a baby, because babies actually, when they don't get the sleep they need they produce cortisol, which is a stress hormone, in their blood. And therefore, what happens is, is that they get more and more stressed throughout the day. And therefore, by the time you're trying to put them down to sleep at night, they don't sleep because they're full of cortisol. So Polly was actually always a really good sleeper. She really was generally. But also, I wanted to do things as well. And, And, you know, for example, one of the things I wanted to do was the buggy fit classes. But they always took place slap bang in the middle of her nap, uh, her morning nap. And so I had to make that choice, which was, do I have a grumpy child later or do I do this for me? And at the time, I didn't have anything that helped me do that. So I remember being out and it is that sort of, you know, that light bulb moment. I was out with a whole group of friends. There was about six of us all from an NCT group. Sitting around having lunch, etc., and the babies must have been—they were all pretty much in stroller seats, so they were all sort of sitting up, and um, so they must have been about seven or eight months or something like that. So it was probably like May, June, two thousand and eight, after Holly was born, and I just thought, why, why don't we have like a blackout blind, you know? Because everyone's putting like muslins and cardigans and blankets and all that sort of thing over the pram, and uh, and I'm thinking, why don't we have something that's like the blackout blind for the window that helps babies go to sleep during the day? It would go over the buggy so my initial concept was actually something i actually called it the buggy blind that was my first kind of concept of a a name and i then went out and i bought what i now know to be completely ridiculous fabric so i bought some cotton which was completely wrong because it would swell if it was if it was warm and and wouldn't dry out if it was wet and all the rest of it and i sort of made up a prototype and i've still got it somewhere it is around and it was absolutely completely shonky i mean you would never use it but that was my sort of basic concept and then I asked a few people, and they said, "Oh, yeah, no, it's a good idea." And I was like, oh, "Okay." Well, a few people have said it's a good idea, and this was remember this is like 2008, so pre sort of Facebook mum. I think it was Net Mums was um, was very popular then locally. So I sort of posted in a few groups saying, "What do you think of this idea?" And other people who were strangers said, "Oh, well, that sounds good." <laughs> so I just started thinking, "Well, how do I develop this?" And then, as I said, I used to work for a magazine company. And when you get the freebies on the front of the magazine, you know, like the sarongs, the lipsticks, the makeup bags, et cetera, I actually used to help get those for the baby magazine I used to work for. And I knew that safety was very important because everything, you can't have a freebie on a magazine killing a baby. That would really be very bad publicity completely. So I've always been completely obsessed with safety. Because I think around by this point, I think Holly had had a febrile convulsion as well where in the pram when we were out and which was very, very scary. And I was always very paranoid about her temperature because, you know, if it went up, you know, she could have another incident, etc. And uh, and by the way, it had nothing to do with being in the pram and it had a, we had a coat over because it was the middle of winter when it happened. It was snowing and I'd actually put a coat over the pram and the doctor said, no, it's nothing to do with the pram being covered. It's purely a viral infection and that's... Yeah etc so but it just made me very very aware of temperature so I contacted an old friend of mine said oh who's doing the cover mounts for prima baby they put me in touch with a lady who has a company where she sources promotional products for really huge brands and I went in and saw her and she actually lives in the town next to me randomly and the the place that she had her office was in the place I went to school when I was like really small all very quite local which was weird and she had four kids and I said to her this is my concept and she was like this is genius and I was like "Really?" Like, is it good? Do you think? She's like, yeah, absolutely. So then we started working on prototypes and, you know, I didn't invent the wheel. I took other products that did something similar, but not the whole thing and and then pulled it together and then tweaked it. And, you know, the end product is completely my design, but like, I don't think anyone invents the wheel really. Like everyone's always working on the basis of starting off from often it's the lack of something in a product that creates product, but without the lack in an existing product, you can't create the product, you know? So it's it's quite funny when people sort of, you know, people get very excited, oh, you've invented something. And I mean, again, I'm a bit, I'm probably a bit blasé about that because I'm like, yeah, I have, but it's funny. I don't really think of it as inventing in many ways, although I suppose, I mean, I'm a problem solver. So um, I got, I think I said earlier, I got diagnosed with ADHD, which is why I jump around like I do in January but a bit late in life unfortunately at 51 you know but the thing is is ADHD a lot of things with ADHD suddenly made sense because ADHD people are very good often at problem solving if you give me a problem I solve I'm like right how do I solve it how how do I get around this you know I d- I've never I don't tend to go through walls I go under them around them over them whatever and so for me this was a problem that I had and I genuinely believed other people must be experiencing this problem too And therefore, that's what's always given me the oomph to kind of carry on when times have been tough. And I mean, now, 13 years later, you know, still every day we get messages through on social media with people going, this is a life changer. It's a game, you know, it's a lifesaver. It's a game changer. And, you know, I think people forget. My company is looks big, but it's really small. I mean, I'm in my office in my garden. I have a team of lovely people. I've got a team about four people who work with me, all part-time. And, you know, those messages really at various points in, in the last few years have really been the things that kept me going. Like yeah. that's what adds to the resilience level, is like the, the belief that I'm doing something that helps other people.
0: Yeah, I think the amount of people that you're helping, because you get to, and I know from personal experience, you get to... Okay, you become a mom, but you're so many other things than just a mom, and you want to be able to still go out. Continue. Oh, you want it. to do everything, don't you? Yeah, meet your friends, and this this news allows you to be yourself as well as being a mom.
1: Yeah, and also the other thing you see is people often say, "Oh, well, you know, just stay in while your baby sleeps." That's fine if you've only got one, right? Like, how? What are you supposed <laughs> to do? Oh, just go to for so to do... because there's no. I know. But also, actually, I've only got one child. Right. I've only got one child. I I was never able to have any more. We went through multiple IVFs afterwards and and it never worked. Right. So I don't have that experience of having multiple children. But why the hell should we stay at home every single day? I most likely often did. I mean, actually, before snoo I hundred percent did stay at home for naps. Or I was the one who was dealing with a very grumpy child, which meant then I didn't get any sleep. And the one thing that's really funny is that sleep for me. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with sleep as an adult. Forget with. I mean, half the issue is not is that Holly not sleeping made my sleep even worse. And then I'm an absolute wreck. Like, and, and I always say there is a reason they use sleep deprivation as a method of torture. <laughs> and yet parents are supposed to go through this torture and they're just supposed to suck it up. Well, okay. hang on a minute.
0: <laughs> and you're... Is obviously you came from a, a business corporate background before you started sne yeah
1: but I did but I'd never had a I never had a freaking clue right That's what I was going because to ask like what was I, it an was overhead very was nice. oh I mean I, my boss used to talk about overheads and I'd be like oh they sound nice as they sort of whizz past my head what's a, what's an overhead I mean I literally had no business experience whatsoever I mean yes I've managed budgets but like a big budget but it wasn't my money. And, and, and there is that element. I mean, I always used to treat it as if it was my money, actually. That was one of the things I think that, you know, I've always, I've never valued a company's money any less than my own. And I've always like, if I can make a saving, I will, you know, in an, on an event, I'd be looking at how do I get, and again, it's my, I think my attitude to life is how do I get more for less? Yeah. You know, so I want it to look fantastic, but I don't want to pay to make it look that fantastic. So how do I get around it? Your, your initial startup cost then was 30 grand was it so um I basically what happened was I'd been freelancing uh for a now ex-friend and uh basically she didn't pay me for quite a long time and while I was pregnant Etc it was all quite unpleasant and so I ended up basically saving the money that she was paying me back because I wanted to make sure I'd got it all because you know and in the end she paid me like literally I think six months after I had Holly, something like that. But it took about two or three years to get two years to get the money out of her. And so I used that money. That was my initial stock purchase, but that was it. And then I was like, right, this is a bought. And the thing was, I mean, I look at it now and I'm like, God, what a moron. Because I, I literally just went, oh, well, there's like 750,000 babies born in the UK and I should be able to hit 1%, which is about seven and a half thousand. And if I'm at 10,000, I'll get a slightly cheaper price. So you Oh, let's just do it. You know, and then I remember like walking up and down the carpet outside. But my mum was staying over at my house and I was walking up and down the carpet. It was just before Christmas. And I'd placed the order, and the order was supposed to come in in, like the February, March of the following year. And I was like, shit. And my mum was like, look, don't worry about it. We'll just sell it at car boot sales, you know, if we have to. And I'm like, oh yeah, I suppose so. That could be a nice hobby. And I mean, in many ways, I suppose that when I started, I didn't see it as a big business. I saw it as a hobby, like really to keep me busy. I was bored as a mum in terms of my brain was not being occupied by the day-to-day looking after a small child. And I think that's something that needs to be OK with other people because, you know, you're you're a highly intelligent human being. And then suddenly, you know, your day to day activity is like, oh, have you done a poo today? Oh, you know, you're not speaking to me yet because you can't, but you've smiled. That's lovely. You know, which it is. And don't get me wrong. You know, all of that's lovely. But trying to fill the time, you know, like going for a coffee or going to a play area and then just sitting watching you know, I mean, I found it really difficult and I did suffer from quite a bit of postnatal depression as well. So for me, like, Snoo Shade, really has been a lifesaver for me in terms of, you know, giving me something to do <laughs> when, I, when Holly was small, although I did probably overdo it somewhat and probably went a bit over the top. Yeah, and, not many people uh, spend 30 grand and buy 10,000 units of stock. Well, and, and not many people have 22 worldwide distributors a year after starting their business either. So, you know, I had to travel, go to trade shows, which I did like literally within three months, having had a
0: full nervous breakdown in the March of 2010, just after I launched. Okay, yeah. let's dive it <laughs> back a bit. Take a breath. <laughs> Take a breath and have a pause. So those 10,000 units, how long did that, that last you after when you first bought it? About six months. But that's really good going for a business that. Because were you able to do? I had a, pre-orders, so I had. Pre, I had. A, so
1: my brother set up a website for me because he's a techie person. He set up a website, but I actually had someone copying me before I even started. I mean, this was the unbelievable thing. So what happened was, I'd called it initially buggy blind, so I registered buggyblind.co.uk. And I also registered Snoo shade and then I decided I preferred snooze shade because I did some research and this is something useful for those starting off any business, frankly, when you're looking for like names. In some languages, they don't have the word blind as in a window covering. It only means blind as in cannot see, which can be a negative like word. So I decided not to use the word blind because I, and then I came up with Snoo shade because I just, I love things. I love names that, as you can tell, buggy blind, Snoo shade, they're names that say what it does on the tin. It's like not hard to work out or it shouldn't be what it does. So um, I actually had someone who bought hi, buggy-blind.co.uk and basically copied my product. And initially my product was actually white in the very early days. Then I went to a trade show, which is where I first met Jojo Mamon Bebe. And in the meantime, I'd changed it to black. And I hadn't actually revealed that publicly anywhere, but this other company was selling their product, Buggy Blind. And uh, for $19.99, and I was planning on going in on $14.99 because while I'd been developing the product, another brand had come on and sort of started launching a product that was similar. It was a kind of sun and sleep shape. And that's when I was like, oh, shit, what am I doing? You know, like somebody else. And they're like a proper brand, like a distributor who'd created a product. And they'd launched it before me. And I was like, shit. So I thought, well... I need to match that price. But actually then when I went to the trade show, I spoke to lots of people and that's what I would also say, if you can, if you're starting a product business, go and speak to other people in the industry because they will share with you. And one of the things I got told was that your product's too cheap for what it is because in comparison to the other product, that's like a piece of draped fabric and mine is stitched seamed elasticates straps velcro at the time I didn't have a zip in the front and then that was a suggestion someone made was to put a zip in the front I was like oh yeah actually that's a really good idea how else can you check in so this other company was copying a product that didn't exist anymore and then when I then did actually come back and announce what was going on on my website I was like about to be stopped by Jojo
0: Mamon Bebe Mother Care John Lewis boom 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 and then they just disappeared Are you ready to scale your e-commerce store? Want to do it without having to wear yet another hat and become a digital marketing expert? This episode is brought to you by Neon Digital Clicks, the paid traffic partner for family and women's e-commerce brands wanting to scale their stores from five-figure to six-figure months using Meta, Google, and Klaviyo marketing services. Neon is offering listeners a free scaling audit worth £3,000. So whether your sales have plateaued or you're looking for growth, this is a great opportunity to lift the lid on your business and identify where the opportunities are hiding. Head to scalingglow.com to discover just how much revenue you could scale your store to this year. Tell me about that then. You said, you know, you had 22 distributors in the first in the first year we did all did the retailers find you at the trade fairs is that where you or were you approaching them how did that kind of
1: a mixture talk- of all of the above so fundamentally i went to trade shows so i made a lot of contacts got a lot of contacts stalked people so i mean i stalked john lewis i stalked mother care or and uh, jojo Mama baby actually i still i still work with them now although i have pulled out of the majority of retail Uh, due to the fact that the margins just aren't really good enough, unfortunately, and it's just not financially viable. But it was great in the early days to be stopped by like John Lewis and Mother Care. And then I got a a distributor for the UK, and then it was into Asda and Tesco and Boots and, you know, all everywhere. And then I went to K&J, which is a a German-based, or it's an international trade fair for children and baby products in the September of 2010. That's where I started picking up the other distributors, so by the end of the following year, that's where I had 22 distributors, like like all over the place, Australia, New Zealand, UAE, Germany, like I had retailers in France and this, that,
0: and the other. And and from, and I know it's the, that was your your very early days. So getting the product out there, getting it seen, getting it known. Now it's a name in its own right. It's a very established brand. Before we started recording, you talked a little bit more about being more profitable? And what do your sales channels look like now versus when you started out in terms of how you reduced your retail partners? Okay. So what I'll I'll do is I'll tell the story
1: of why I went out of retail, because that's fairly critical, which is I was getting divorced. So in 2014, my ex and I were getting divorced and I had to look at the business in a very different way because obviously I was married, he had income, I had income. It was not a lifestyle business, but sort of verging on it. You know, it was profitable, making money, et cetera. But I spent most of my money, if I'm honest, reinvesting in the business constantly. And then obviously in 2014, I was like, shit, I'm going to be a single mom. I've got to look after my daughter. I've got to put a roof over my head, et cetera, et cetera. So I started looking at all the numbers and I just realized that, yeah, it looked great. And I was everywhere, but like the margins on selling to a distributor, are absolutely ridiculously low. So, you know, you sell 50,000 units and you're making a pound a unit, one pound 50 so I was like, no, I just can't do it. It's like because they need to sell it at a price that they can then sell to the retailer at. And the retailer wants minimum of 50%. Usually it's around a sort of 42% margin. People like John Lewis want 60% sometimes. You know, other retailers want, want more than that. So and just to ask you, what kind of percentage did the distributors need? Well, the distributors need about 20%, I think, to make it worth their while. Right. Okay. So, you know, you're looking at 50%, 20%, I'm left with 30% and I've got to pay for the product. So my margins were really small and I'm putting in just as much work as I am, like if I'm selling it more direct. So I just, uh, what happened was I actually saw some Facebook ads, which were talking about selling on Amazon and like how you could sit on a beach and listen to Amazon ching, chinging away and how, you know. And we were selling on Amazon. And the interesting thing was uh, my distributor had been selling on uh, to, to vendor on, on Amazon. And I'd been number one bestseller since launch in 2010. So snooshade Shade has been number one in the UK since launch. And it's pretty much never lost a number one position. Having said that, The amount of money I make now versus the amount of money and profit that I make then is, and also the volume as well is is immense. So what happened was I actually just said, look, I'm really sorry. I had to say this. And I had a wholesale distributor as well. So I had one doing majors and one doing wholesalers, and then I had other distributors all over the place. And I just said, look, I'm really sorry, but I've either got to do this direct more or I close the business. So lose, lose for you, I'm afraid, one way or the other, right? And I, I, had, I was, I've always been on very good terms with people. I don't believe in being a dickhead in business. There's no need to be nasty, et cetera. And um, so, you know, they were, and they were lovely, you know, they were like, yeah, 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 no, I get it. I get it. And so then I started focusing on Amazon and how I could make Amazon really work for me rather than what I'd been doing historically. So I started studying how Amazon works and looking at globally expanding
0: without distributors and doing it more directly. So and that's, that's where it changed. And what would you say now in terms of sales channels from a percentage point of view, what percentage is direct to consumer, you know, through your website? What percentage is Amazon and then other retailers? Right. So other retailers is hardly anything at all, frankly. Yeah. And direct
1: to consumer in the UK. Now you're asking because... Average. I'm (laughs) I'm just trying to work it out in my head. And mental mass is my worst thing. It's why I spend a lot of time in spreadsheets with formulas because of the fact I can't process numbers. I'm slightly discalculate. So it is about like, so interestingly, and again, this is about focus, which is that what happened also was I decided that I wanted to grow the business more off of Amazon. So what happened was Amazon grew very, very well. But actually, I don't have any control over the brand on Amazon, really. Other, Amazon controls your brand on Amazon. And I wanted to grow the business. So that's hence why I've got Facebook ads now, because I've got ripped off over the years by people telling me they could make sales for my brand and they were useless. They didn't understand it. I've now got a fabulous agency, Neon Digital, who actually really deliver on making the money I spend on Facebook Delivering sales. I've also got someone amazing on SEO who, again, is very focused on driving traffic. Now, sometimes what happens is that traffic will go to Amazon, right? Because I'm an Amazon whore, right? So if I want something, I've I've got Prime. I want it tomorrow. I don't want to wait around. But there is also a lot of people who like sporting brands, and I love them. Thank you very much because I do make more money that way because Amazon takes about 34 to 42 percent of my margin in fees, advertising cost of shipping etc. So when people say oh, can I have a discount on Amazon I'm like no because <laughs> I've got to make some money you know I've got to pay my pay my bills. But on my website I I you know we usually have like a 10% off discount offer et etc that we can do because I can afford to do it. But now the website's probably about quarter possibly of Amazon turnover and it's pretty significant in the UK. But as I was saying to you before we we started recording I've just in Ju- in July I started looking at my numbers more closely, and I'd I'd been a bit lax in actually studying my numbers. And I'd also changed accounting systems from Sage to Zero a few years ago. And I used to know Sage inside and out. And zero, I was a bit kind of like, oh, I don't really understand it. And then I had a friend of mine come and show me how it worked. And then I was like, shit, now I've got it how I want to see it. I don't want to see some of the numbers, you know? So for example, I've been selling in the UK, on Amazon, the US, Canada, and Australia. UK and Australia are actually okay. Canada, I think I've actually made a loss in Canada this year. And uh, in the US, uh, my sales have plummeted. Unfortunately, not due to somebody like a big retailer copying me, but due to a lot of small, basically it's the Chinese factories are copying my what was my best selling product in the US, which is the cover for Travel Cots. And because of the fact that the list, I know why they're doing it, because the listing was launched in 2013. So they know that if I've got a patent, it'll have run out and I can't do anything about it because patents only last 10 years. So they basically, they're coming in with very cheap, very nasty, potentially unsafe products that don't even pass the basic safety levels of even having washing labels in them or any, or instructions, but they're $25 And my product is $80 because my product is safety tested. It's made of two layers of mesh, not one thick layer of spandex or Lycra or one thick layer of... Unfortunately, it's so frustrating to see. But what it's made me do is go, okay, fine. Right. What are we going to do? So I'm just pulling down in the US, shutting Canada down. Because if people want to buy it in Canada, they can buy it from Amazon.com in the US, which is what they used to do. And then I'm putting my thinking head on. And the UK is doing well. The brand is growing. People are more aware of it, whereas obviously in the US less so and Canada. And so I'm putting a bit of effort next year into the US brand building and working on other products rather than the travel cot cover, working more on the stroller sunshades because those the Americans are not quite so into protecting their children from the sun, frankly, as we are. But I've also got a few other new product ideas, a few different ways of spinning products. I'm bringing one new product in that is a redo of one of the products. And I think once that is done, I don't think I'll need some of the other products in other markets. So that'll make it more focused, streamlining. streamlining. But in the UK, everyone will always have access to everything. But now I'm streamlining to like three products in Australia, four products in America, none in Canada. And it's really hard because, you know, there's an emotional element and possibly ego as well of like being able to say, yeah, I sell in like the UK and US and Australia and Canada and oh yeah, great. But actually the reality is I'm I'm not running this business so that I can sit and have a, a big lot of compliments thrown at me. I'm running it so I can put food on the table. And it's ridiculous to be running, a, a have a part of the business that's actually losing me money. So I think this is what we all have to do sometimes. We have to be really harsh. We have to, and I, um, boy, oh boy, when I talk about spreadsheets, I have, I mean, I tell you what, the scary spreadsheets. And one of the first things also I did is I had to renegotiate with my manufacturer because I was like, the cost of goods is too high. And basically, unless we get the price down, right and some of the price increases over the last few years have been a bit weird I was like unless we get it down I, and I did that I said look I'll pay what you're saying you
0: want for the next year but I will then spend the next year finding a new manufacturer I think so those, you know, those honest conversations are really important um, I mean you and, all would have been in a position where you're putting a decent amount of volume through you exactly know, so that you're able to have that open conversation I think with when you're working with manufacturers like that, it is kind of black and white. And that's the kind of approach that you need to have. It's like, right, we'll agree to do this for the next six months, but just so you know, this is what's... But
1: actually I didn't have to do that. So they came back, you know, renegotiated. Which is often,
0: which is often what will happen, you know. Yeah, you- of course,
1: because they don't want to lose the business because I'm like, yeah. you'll have me for a year, but that's it, you know, I'm off then. And the other thing as well was that I became a little bit more logical. I think because like I was saying, I had no clue about business. I've learned everything I'm doing. I've learned by doing it. Or listening to other people or picking things up and deciding what I think will work for me and what will work. I, I have no, I don't have a an MBA. I'm a pragmatic person. I'm pretty practical. And like I say, you know, I've always been very focused on keeping costs down to make money, as in like when I was running events, cut budgets down. And I think I probably just didn't do that with my own business because it all seemed to be going like the numbers in terms of turnover and, and the irony is one of my favorite sayings this turnover is vanity and profit is sanity and yet I was clearly insane because my profit levels were crap right in some places so you know it's like wow like my favorite saying I'm
0: completely ignoring it you know I know and sometimes when it's your own business you can be a bit blinkered a little bit but let's talk about the copying I know you mentioned Chinese brands doing that a little bit on your product a lot
1: not a little bit Uh, a a lot lot. but (laughs) You've, you've that's actually been, harder. That's actually harder to deal with than, than the other ones I've dealt it's with. It's quite discreet, is
0: it? Not discreet, but it's quite... No, uh, it's not. It's, uh, it's covert, yeah. I suppose, in terms of, right, where are they getting it from? Who's it actually doing? But let's not talk about the small guys a minute, even though I know they're probably having a big impact. Let's initially talk about when the kind of copying, obviously it started from the very beginning. But you've taken the big boys to court and what? Well, I haven't actually. So I do have to. I didn't take to oh, court. I took them down the legal route. There's a difference.
1: Right. Okay. So when we, this was when when so did this was 2019 Easter 2019. I can remember it well. It was Easter weekend. And the thing is, what, what people forget, what big companies forget, is that we're people and our customers are people. And when you're nice to your customers, which we always are, I mean, like my team, we bend over backwards for our customers. I, I, my customer is my king, queen. I Without my customers, I don't have a business. And I, you know, it's one of the things that frustrates me the most about big retailers is that customer service recently over the last few years has oh. gone to shit Like absolutely gone to shit. And people are always blown away by what we do because I'm all like, I will message like someone messages in at like 11 o'clock at night and they've got a problem. Even if I just say, I've got you, we'll sort you tomorrow. Like that's what I will do just so that someone knows that a human being, like rather than all this AI chatbot crap, as a real human being, we know you'll be okay. Anyway. So one of my customers sent me a picture of a product that was in the Aldi baby special promotion offer and um, it looked amazingly similar to my product. Even in the style of the photo that they'd used, the lifestyle picture, it was almost an exact copy. And to be fair, when it first happened, I was actually just scared more than anything else because I was like, shit, what the do I do now? Excuse my French, but I do swear a lot. And uh, I was like, oh my God. So what actually happened was it started developing. And like, for example, first of all, we could see that they had this image, lifestyle image, and it was a sunshade. It was also half the price of mine. of the one they were copying and then it came into the shops sorry no it went into online properly so then we could see a bit more of it and I was like okay and then when I actually bought it for the first time and there is actually a video on YouTube of when I first went into store and saw it because I was like oh my god and literally this was shown on the BBC One show. There's again, there's a. I, I did an interview for, with them where we went through it, and word for word, other than the mentioning of the fact it was invented by a mum, it was the same copy. They'd used similar. They'd used my icons that I'd had designed for me. My mum and I had written the copy together, and then I tweaked it and finalised it, etc. Even the way everything was like, it just was. You know, you can watch the the One Show clip, and you'll see. And I was like, just sat there like shit. And as it evolved over like a week or so, I was posting on my personal Facebook page and my personal Facebook page, you can't access. It's very shut down. But then a friend of mine took a screenshot from my personal Facebook page and posted it on Twitter. And I was like, shit, what the hell do I do? I'm like, in hell, like this, this is just unbelievable. I was like, I was really quite cross with the friend because I was like, this was on my private Facebook but actually then what happened I was like well you know what actually somebody's just put that into the into the public domain and it wasn't me So you know what fuck it So I basically, I did like a little image and I did like a, this is my brand, which is award winning, safety tested to the max, mum invented, blah, blah, blah. And this is the retailer brand and it's half the price. Don't know if it's been safety tested, you know, blatant copy, et cetera, et cetera, and started tweeting it. And then we got quite a lot of traction from people retweeting, et cetera. And then quite a few journalists picked it up. And that's where I got like, I was on Channel 5, I was on the BBC One show. And I think I was in every single major UK newspaper in the country. Yeah. So the reason I don't mind that this happened is it actually raised visibility of the brand in a way that I couldn't have done myself.
0: Yeah, um, So you got lots of, even though it, was, it would have been a difficult and stressful time, you got a lot of free press.
1: Well, it was very stressful because I I had to then take on lawyers and I knew what my costs could be. And I'm a small business and that would have probably obliterated a very large percentage of my profits for that year if I hadn't have been able to recoup some of them. But I I actually primarily at the other thing that's a bit annoying about me is I'm all about the principle of things as well. So uh, on principle I was like you're not going to fucking bully me right I like you do and they do it to lots of people like it's not just one retailer we know it we've seen it all all over you know it's all of them they all do it right and I've seen multiple people have it done to them by multiple different retailers and they do it because they can and they clearly just bought the best selling product on Amazon and then sent it to China and said copy this and China does not have the imagination to do anything other than copy they don't actually usually expand on or improve. And therefore that's exactly what they got was a copied product to the point where you could see how copied it was. Yeah, I and, can't, and, that, and that stood me in good, in good stead in terms of my legal rights, because whilst I didn't have a patent, I did have unregistered design rights, which in the UK are valid, right? So you have registered design rights, but unfortunately, in the middle of my divorce, because I moved houses, I had a letter renewing my registered design rights, which would have meant I was covered. And unfortunately, I didn't get it. And I lost my registered design rights for that one product, which was very frustrating. But you still have unregistered design rights. And I had copyright as well, because there was actual copyright infringement in terms of the text and the imagery, etc., that was blatantly one taken from one and one to the other.
0: And for those that are listening, where
1: can they register design rights? So you can register design rights with the IPO, the Intellectual Property Office. At the time, and the re- one of the reasons it got lost was because I actually did it with the European IPO. You, It's EU IPO, which obviously now with Brexit is not, not applicable. But you can do it with the IPO and they're very helpful. And you just need to, it's not about the function of a product. That's a patent. It's about the look and design of the product. So obviously making a product that was almost identical in terms of like literally you could see if you put one next to the other, they were identical. You know, it it was...
0: There's a myth that if you change seven things and... Oh, that's bollocks. That's bollocks. I know, I know, I know. But like, I suppose with yours, they didn't even change one thing, but there's that that myth that if you change seven things, but that's not true either because you... Well, to be fair, it can be less than seven
1: things for a patent. That's the problem. And also the other thing is, is you actually, I mean, I am quite an expert on IPO as well. So I actually did, I've actually created a course that is how to trademark your product because I got asked it so many times How do I trademark? And it's actually quite easy if you understand what you're doing. And especially if you're, you know, not trademarking, it's trademarking a brand or whatever. It's actually quite simple. So like, you know, I've had it before. I've had people before do it. And in fact, I had other people, I had another company that did almost exactly the same thing where they actually did use the images from my product, but they just made them into black and white and thought that I wouldn't notice And I actually got them shut down as well and on design right, um, on registered design rights as well. So I had a a bit of a a bit of a run on them where they had to destroy the product because otherwise they had to because the thing is, um, if they infringe, they then have to pay you something to have used your, they have to pay you a, a fee for having used your design illegally, which it's not like you can then go, oh no, I don't want that, I want you to destroy it. If they offer to pay, whereas this other company, which was a lot smaller, Didn't want to pay, so I'm like, okay, well then the only other legal option is you have to. We get the products and we destroy them to make sure they're not long. Yeah, because also the other issue for me, again, it's not just the all of this stuff. It's the safety. I have designed all of my products, and all of them are safety tested. All of them, I've designed them to be safe. And I don't know that these other products, in fact, I pretty much can guarantee you, right? I've tested my products for things like direct suffocation and CO2 rebreathing, which has cost me thousands, right? I can guarantee you a product that's costing whatever it is and is only selling one product of that kind will not have done those tests. And yeah. they're probably selling a product that has one thick layer of fabric, which will not be air permeable, which is what my products are. So for me, it's actually, it's not just about protecting my brand. It's about protecting other people's babies because yeah. you know I can't guarantee that
0: they're taking the same steps that I do. And tell me then more about so you it blew up on Twitter, you were all over the press. What happened then with that particular retailer? You approached them, you my lawyers, my lawyers, we had
1: to this is the other thing. What they do, and this is the same for all of them, I've said this is not just my personal experience. I've got many friends in the industry who've gone through the same processes. And what happens is the big boys ignore the little people. Okay, Mm -hmm. so what they do, they've all got internal legal departments or on-call lawyers that they use all the time. And so your little person has to pay a lawyer to send a letter to the big boys and then the big boys ignore it. So then you have to pay, the little person has to pay your lawyer to send another letter. And guess what happens? They ignore it. And they will carry on doing that until the end of time because there is absolutely no incentive for them not to do that. So the only way you can actually get them to take you seriously is to threaten to go to court. To do that, you have to prepare all the documentation as if you are going to court. So that cost, getting barristers involved, you know, solicitors, etc, is quite immense. And so how many small businesses are going to be prepared to do that? And I think fundamentally this is one part of the legal system that is very fucked up. Because I actually think it's wrong that a company can just ignore another person's legal letter because yeah. it's all based on who's bigger than who, who's the bully,
0: is right? The, yeah. And who's got the bigger, bull, not the
1: bigger, who's got the, who's got the bigger budget, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is at the end of the day is that most small businesses don't have 20 or 30 grand to throw into a legal case, which they're worried they might not win because who knows, it's not always a definite firm right. like case, but the point is there's no mediation. There's no like incentive, you know, like when you get divorced, before you're able to go to court, you have to do mediation or have tried to do mediation before you can then progress to the next level. And I think there should be something similar for businesses, you know, which is that if you've got a claim, the very least you should have is an, is an initial mediation, which should be, again, literally, this is the case. What What's your answer?
0: Because if you'd have said that to this company, they wouldn't have had an answer because they have blatantly copied it, <laughs> you yeah. know? And it would have been settled a lot sooner. And so it didn't go to court. So you would have set, you settled out of court and came to an agreement. How long did that whole process take? I can't remember exactly. It was either eight, it was either 18 months or over two years. And you've had continuous continuous infringement haven't you yeah you've had quite a lot so and I had some
1: I had some in 2021 by another well-known retailer who I actually as I said to you before I haven't actually got onto it properly but what they did was very sneaky they didn't do it in the UK they did it in the Republic of Ireland in Northern Ireland thinking that I wouldn't find out about it but unfortunately I have custom I had one of my team lives in Belfast and one of um, my lovely customers is in, in Southern Ireland and then um, it was actually one of my customers who showed me and said what this is. And then one of my team went into the local store in Belfast and bought it. And it's basically exactly the same product that the other retailer did in a different color of
0: packaging. I just can't understand how. But why would you do exactly. that? that it. Really if is. you researched your, your brand, Obviously, they would have seen your brand. And you, whenever you Google you, the issues of copyright and what you've gone through, they come up you know, and who you, you know, the legal route and stuff like that that you've done. So they know they're heading for a fight. But but to be honest, it will be a buyer that's in the office has probably not done that. Never done any research at all. As soon as you approach them, I think that they'll be like, okay. We're oh back. no, we have approached
1: them and they're still ignoring. No, they, oh, are they? Oh, have you done yeah. that?
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, <laughs> you know, this is a problem. So I've got to get my big, I mean, I think the, the main issue is, is that it's exhausting doing this sort of thing. It's actually tiring and it takes my focus away from what I really want to do, which is run the business, develop some new products, you know, do things differently, grow the business where I can, etc. That's what I enjoy doing. I don't enjoy doing this legal stuff. It's horribly stressful because I don't like conflict <laughs> and I don't like the idea of losing like quite significant sums of money in legal fees, you know, but I've got to take that
0: chance. Absolutely. And for those people that are listening, how can they protect their brand so register the design rights but what trademark
1: else? is really yeah. important and one of the things that people often forget about is trademarking in China or in the country in which you manufacture but particularly China so in China if you manufacture in China and you don't have a trademark somebody in China could potentially trademark your product and then you will be banned from exporting your own product because you don't own the trademark in China and uh, you can be stopped at uh, docks So it's vital that you get trademark in China. And I think, I'm not sure, I think China, I have to double check because I haven't looked at this for a while. I think China is part of the Madrid Protocol. So basically what you can do is you start, you apply your trademark, apply for your trademark in the UK and make sure you get the categories right as well, because other people, other mistakes I've made, for example, is I've actually got multiple trademarks because I trademarked in, so there's something called the Madrid Protocol, and that is a protocol that certain countries in the world follow. And therefore, if you trademark in one country, you can then apply to trademark in other countries that are part of the Madrid Protocol without necessarily having to go through the individual country. Like, in for example, I lost my U.S. trademark because I trademarked back in 2010 or 11 or something, and in the US there's a slightly different rule, which is that you have to show after five or six years that you are using that trademark, and if you don't, then you lose the trademark. So I was sitting there trading, thinking I was fine. Went and checked because I regularly go and check on trademarks every like year or something just to make sure like um, I need whether I need to renew something or do whatever. And I suddenly saw that mine was deceased. I was like, fuck. So I ended up getting in touch with a contact with a lawyer and the the lawyer was in the wrong um, and they were supposed to have renewed it and they didn't. So I then had to reapply. So I've now got a new trademark, which is quite expensive. Canada, same thing. I've, I've got a new trademark there. Australia, I was actually able to do myself and Canada, the first one I did myself. UK, I did myself. But like I say, that it's the categories. So if you think that you're going to go into a particular category, it's worth trademarking if you think that's a really dead cert, but otherwise wait until you actually go into that category. Because for example, podcast, there is a podcast category. You could trademark that name, although there are generics and non-generics and all the rest of it. So you could trademark that name, but if you then wanted to do a magazine or a teaching course or something like that, that's a separate category. So if you think you're going to do a course and you're going to do a podcast, make sure you trademark in podcast and course. But what can happen is somebody else can come along and say, "Oh, hang on a minute. Like McDonald's restaurants, let's it's a classic example, right? You've got McDonald's farm, McDonald's restaurants. So, McDonald's farm is fine because McDonald's restaurants aren't farming. But McDonald's has got training, for example. So, you, if you want, if you're called McDonald's and you want to you've got a training company, you can't call it McDonald's because McDonald's does genuinely have a training arm and has trademark that term. So, you'd need yeah. to come up with something else. So, all of these things when you're doing trademarks, just take into consideration and then just make sure that those categories are all then apply them in the countries where you think you're going to go. Because realistically, you're probably not going to go into South Korea, North Korea or whatever, right? Or Moldavia or some other fabricated country. But the US is potentially a strong place for products. Europe as well is a strong place potentially for some products, etc. So just think like when you're doing it in the early days, the Madrid protocol makes it easier to apply because otherwise what you'll have to do is if you don't do it within, I can't remember what the time frame is, but if you don't do it within the time frame, then you'll have to do all of those trademarks as fresh applications within that particular country. Some of them you have to use a lawyer, like the US, You as an outside of US resident, you can't put a trademark in yourself. So then you have to pay the legal fees that go alongside that.
0: And so- for people that are talking about design rights trademarking it anything else that
1: well patents are valuable particularly if there is something genuinely unique however what i would also say is that sometimes what people people get a patent but they're not actually patenting something they're patenting a part of the product so if you can someone can change that part then actually, then they can get around it, and patents are really expensive, like to yeah. process.
0: So and quite um, hard to prove to get through. I think it's it's a, it's a it's quite a lengthy process. It's a lengthy things. process. I mean, you know, it is great, and it adds to saleability. So
1: having a patent, for example, as a business owner, adds value. It's all part of your IP like stock, if you like to say yeah. so. You know, as much think of it. Think of it as added value. You know, if you are ever thinking of, of exiting your business or selling it, then you know it's things that add value to the brand because it means that no one else can call their product Snoo because I've got Snoo trademark in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, like UK,
0: Europe, etc. And from a business point of view, what do you want to stop, start, and continue doing? Well, so I'm as I think I said, um,
1: I worked out that Canada is stopping because I'm not making any money. And in fact, I'm losing it. So that vanity one is gone. Starting, I've got some new ideas for products that I want to do some that are kind of special needs, which I think is really interesting. Because again, it's about I love to help people. So it's that if I can help more people, I I will if if I can. Um, And then other products, actually, I think I'm opening my eyes a little bit more to kind of what I'd call complementary products, which is I know that people buy certain products when they buy my my brand and some of them are not like branded products. They're just a thing. And therefore, I'm going to sell that thing because if they're going to buy it, they might as well buy it from me rather than from someone else.
0: So not, you'll buy in that brand. So you'll sell your own brand. It's not a
1: brand. It won't be a branded product. I mean, that's the point. It'll just be like, you know, like a car. I mean, I'm thinking of doing car window shades, for example. Um, You know, there's lots of car window shades out there. Mine will be different because I I don't like a lot of the car window shades that are out there. Um, But there'll be other products which I could buy off the shelf and literally just put my brand on, which, you know, I know people will be buying anyway, so they might as well buy my one. Yeah. No. So making that, increasing that transaction. And then, and then also focusing, I think sometimes focusing more on what works. So for example, the UK works. And I think, you know, one of the things that is great about, you know, is that it's a homegrown business. Obviously I'm, I'm British and, you know, what's really interesting as well is because I've been around such a bloody long time. I mean, I mean, it is funny because there's, of course, there's got to be room for growth because if, if I was actually selling to all of the parents of all the babies that are born in the UK, I wouldn't be sitting in a quite cold Garden office in Walton on Thames. I'd probably be being interviewed by my uh, in Barbados villa while I'm having a manicure pedicure, you know. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. um, So the business, uh, but you see, what I think the fundamental thing for me that makes me want to always continue doing snooze shade is it gives me a lifestyle that I love, which is. Uh, funnily enough, I was chatting to my daughter this morning. and I was like, "Darling, was I a bad mother? Like, you know, or you know, if I like like not spent enough time with you, et cetera. She's like, "Well, it does annoy me that you work so much because," she said, "it's the fact you work out of hours that annoys me." So she's like, "You know, you'll be there and you'll be, but you're not there because you're focusing on a customer who's like, you know, needs." And I said, "Darling, but if it's a customer, I have to answer them if I'm if I'm awake, you know. I, I like have to just let them know that they're okay, you know, and that we've got them." But the other stuff I said, actually, if you think about it, I said, I've dropped her off at school, picked her up from school. I've never missed, I've missed one school play because I had to go uh, on a work trip. You know, and we have actually spent a lot of time. Yes, I might have been not always 100% there, if I'm honest, but I was physically there. And that for me is actually what makes my whole business worthwhile. And like, she's just in the middle of doing her mock GCSEs at the moment. And she wants mummy to be around. So I've stopped. I'm not doing any international work trips this year until she's finished her exams in like June, July. You know, then I'll start traveling again for a bit. And then I will not travel again when she's doing her A-levels, you know, but I mean, that's, that's, she's what is important to me in my life as are my friends and all the rest of it. So, you know, and, and Shade allows me to do those things and be spend time with the people that I love and do something that I find interesting.
0: And so we're stopping trading where we can. So stopping in Canada where it's not worthwhile or it's not beneficial, starting with the new ideas and new products. And what about continuing doing? Uh, Continue what
1: what we do, which is delivering absolutely fucking amazing customer service, continuing providing products which are like so high quality. Like we officially say we've got something like a 0.1% fault rate. It's lower than that. Often people what happens is, which is one of the most frustrating things in my life, and this is how sad my life is, you know, if someone gets a fault on Amazon, they return it to Amazon and then Amazon puts it back into circulation because they don't check it. Right. So then, that one product goes round maybe multiple customers, and so I've actually got a card in my products that says, "If you have any problems, please don't contact the retailer. Contact us." And then what we do is we take it out of circulation, send them a new one. Job done. So I love, you know, my products are more expensive than other people's, but it's you know they last for years. I'm actually at the moment we're just doing a pre-loved activity where I'm actually getting people to swap in their old Snoo shades. And some of them I've actually got, I'm actually calling vintage because I know they're about 2011, 2012, because I can tell from the logo, but they're still going. I will resell them to customers who want to try and buy a more sustainable product, you know, but the thing is these things last, you know, that there's no chemicals with the UV protection, et cetera. So it's the way they're made that makes them last. So, yeah, so just little things like that helping, you know, as I said, I think saving the planet one baby step at a time, you know, trying to do a little bit what I
0: can, <laughs> Cara, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and find Snooze Shade? Well, Snooze Shade, all you have to do is Google Snooze Shade at
1: snoozeshade.com. That's really easy. Or Snooze Shade on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or anywhere really. And me via Snooze Shade, really, I have got a KaraSay.com website, but I don't really do anything much with it. So probably Snooze Shade is the easiest way.
0: <laughs> Amazing. You've been such a great guest and I will be back again next week with another great guest. Thank you very much, Cara. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Start, Scale, Succeed. If you've enjoyed today, I would love for you to leave a review and I will see you again next week. If you'd like to hear more from me, your host, Nicole Higgins, you can follow me on Instagram at the Retail Coach. check out my website, www.thebuyingretailcoach.com or find me on LinkedIn. All the links are below in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter, The Step, for lots of helpful tips and advice.